The Lord be with you. Hear the word of God from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, located on page 893 in the Pew Bible. Hear now the good news. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said to and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored, and then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. The word of God from the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What do you think of when you hear that someone is a missionary? What images come to mind? I can't help but think of brave souls with Bibles in hand, setting sail to distant lands, enduring all kinds of dangers and difficulties as they preach the gospel, often surviving against all the odds, and demonstrating the most awe-inspiring faith in the process. Like the two missionaries in the wilds of Africa, 
who suddenly came face to face with a hungry looking lion. Thank you. The one frantically started pulling on some running shoes. His colleague said to him, what are you doing? You'll never outrun that lion. To which he replied, I don't have to outrun the lion. I just have to outrun you. (laughs) And sure enough, he gapped it. The remaining missionary fell to his knees and prayed a passionate prayer. Lord, as in the days of old, when you shut the mouths of lions and so delivered your servant Daniel, I pray that you lay your hand on this lion and turn him to you, that I too may be delivered. Amen. As he opened his eyes, he saw a truly astonishing sight. The lion, I kid you not, had gotten down on its knees and was clasping its front paws together in an unmistakable posture of prayer. And then quite miraculously, the missionary heard the lion praying, Blessed be thou, Lord God, for the gift of this low-fat meal which thou hast delivered. You're very gracious to laugh at that rather feeble joke, but it does convey a serious truth. When we think of missionaries, we commonly think of people in faraway places who have to rely on the power of prayer as they do the work of the Lord with their limited resources. There is, of course, truth in that. As a church, we support many missionaries for whom that is exactly the deal. The Yellow Missions Directory you've received gives all the details of those mission projects we're involved with. And, and after the service today, you can learn more in the activity center as well as meet some of our mission partners. And to our mission partners, we want to say thank you for your faithfulness and for the ways in which you challenge us to a greater faithfulness of our own. What a joy. What a joy it is for us today to celebrate this incredible gift of being united in mission with many others beyond the walls of Hyde Park who also are seeking to make God's love real. Incidentally, that's also another compelling reason for you to make a generous financial commitment to this church. Because a portion of every dollar you give to Hyde Park is let loose to make a missional difference in the world far and wide. In fact, this year, over $400,000, representing approximately 15% of our total income, will be given away to the mission of God in the world. Isn't that amazing? And friends, your giving means that you are part of this glorious conspiracy of generosity, which you've got to admit is pretty cool. Lee and I have waited until today 
to turn in our commitment card because we particularly wanted to do so on this Mission Celebration Sunday. You see, back home in South Africa, we have seen with our own eyes the missional difference that Hyde Park is making. And now we're so thrilled to be able to be an active part of that through our giving to this church. We hope and pray that you would join us and the many others who have already made their commitments. It's a vital way for us to be united in mission. But I must warn you, there's a danger in all of this. The danger lies in thinking that our mission responsibility is essentially a checkbook commitment, that our task is to give the money so that others, a.k.a. the missionaries, can go out and do the work. Please hear this. If we think that missionaries are other people who go to faraway places, then we will miss the truth that the mission of God always starts right where we are. Because here's the thing, when God hears the word missionary, what comes to God's mind are the images of you and me. Of course, we don't think of ourselves in that way, do we? So clearly something needs to happen if we are to start living as the missionaries of God that we are surely called to be, simply put, we need a conversion. That's what our scripture reading today from Acts 9 is all about. It's the story of Saul's dramatic conversion that turned him into the early church's greatest missionary. There are three things about his story that we would do well to notice. The first is this, Saul needed to see Jesus. He needed to look beyond his religious convictions to see Jesus. The fact is that Saul was already on a mission, a mission motivated by his religious zeal. But it was a mission of death, not life, because his ideas about God were getting in the way of him actually seeing God. Until one day, as his murderous mission took him to Damascus, he was stopped by a blinding light and a probing voice that said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. For all his religious fervor, Saul hadn't seen who it was that he was hurting. I sometimes wonder whether our religious ideas of what people should believe and our religious judgments of how people should behave, I sometimes wonder whether that gets in the way of simply seeing them and seeing the Christ that is within them. 
Saul needed to see Jesus. It was an essential part of his conversion to be the missionary God wanted him to be. It will be an essential part of our conversion too. Secondly, Saul needed to be touched by grace. If you read the text carefully, you'll notice that contrary to popular opinion, Saul's conversion didn't happen all at once on the road to Damascus. It was, in fact, a process. It started on that Damascus road with him being convicted of his misperceptions, but then continued for three days Three days of reflection in the darkness of his blindness and then culminated with hands being laid on him by a man called Ananias. Ananias was one of the believers in Damascus. Maybe he had fled there from Jerusalem because of Saul's murderous threats. I wonder whether he ever dreamed of getting the chance to lay hands on Saul. You know what I mean, to lay hands on him, to to, to sort him out? So when the Lord told him to go and lay hands on Saul, not in vengeance, but in forgiveness, he was incredulous. Lord, do you know who this guy is? asked Ananias. This is Saul. The very reason he's here is to lay hold of us who believe in you. And if he's planning on doing it in alphabetical order, I'm in big trouble. (laughs) But the Lord said to him, go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to make my name known. So Ananias went and laid hands on Saul and said to him, Brother Saul, Jesus has sent me to you. And his eyes were opened. And the first thing he saw was the face of someone he had come to kill looking back at him with forgiveness and love seeing him as a brother, in that grace-filled moment, he surely saw Jesus, and he was forever changed. He had been touched by grace. Without it, he had nothing to offer, and neither do we, but with it, we, like Saul, can be the chosen instruments of God. Thirdly, Saul needed to discover the purpose of prayer. In the text, we read about Saul praying, but if we read it carefully, it reveals that Saul's prayer was not a way to try to get God to act, but rather a way for him to discover that God was already acting. If only we could learn this lesson of the true purpose of prayer. To see who God really is and what God is already doing. There's a lovely story about a little Portuguese boy called Julio 
who really wanted a PlayStation for Christmas. You get PlayStations in America? You do? Okay. Just checking. Being a good Catholic boy, he decided to pray about it and decided to put his prayer in a letter to baby Jesus. And so he went to his room and sat down and started to write, Dear Jesus, I want the PlayStation. Please give me the PlayStation. If you give me the PlayStation, I promise to clean my room every day. He stopped, looked around at his room, which was a disaster zone that not even Chuck Norris could sort out. <laughs> looked at what he'd written and quickly scrumpled up that piece of paper. He started a second time. Dear Jesus, I want the PlayStation. Please give me the PlayStation. If you give me the PlayStation, I promise to wash the dishes every Sunday. Then he suddenly remembered that his extended family numbered 27 people, and they always came to lunch on Sunday, and so he scrunched up that piece of paper also. He thought and he thought. Suddenly, this flash of inspiration came over his face. He jumped up and ran downstairs. There in the entrance foyer, being a good Catholic home, was a statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the mother of Christ. He grabbed the statue, dragged it upstairs, wrapped it in a blanket, threw it into his cupboard, locked the door, took out the key, and then walked slowly back to his desk, sat down and started writing a third letter. <laughs> Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again... <laughs> Bargaining with God, convincing God, manipulating God. Friends, that's not the purpose of prayer. As Phillips Brooks put it so well, prayer is not the overcoming of God's reluctance, but the taking hold of God's willingness. And so, my fellow missionaries, may God's work of conversion continue in us as we come to see Jesus more and more in the people around us, as we recognize that apart from God's grace, we can do nothing, and as we allow our prayers to draw us more deeply into what God is already doing, that great mission of love of which you and I most surely can be a part. And so let me close. In 1993, I went on an in-service training mission with a group of young pastors to, rem to a remote rural community called Kunana in the former homeland of Bapututswana, about 200 miles west of Johannesburg. To provide a little context, these homelands were monstrous creations of apartheid South Africa's sick imagination. As part of the grand design to keep racial groups separated, pockets of land around the country were ceded to black communities, 
under the guise of creating independent states. But the chosen areas had virtually no infrastructural development, no mineral resources, no commerce, very limited agricultural potential. Kunana was no exception. It was essentially a wasteland. And the awful irony is that the name Kunana is an Afrikaans translation of Canaan, the promised land. To make matters worse, at the time of our mission trip, the whole area was in the grip of a devastating drought. The day we drove out to Kanana, we were accompanied by a massive sandstorm as a hot, oppressive wind whipped the red, dusty soil into the air all around us. It looked like the earth and sky were bleeding, and maybe they were, given what we found when we arrived. Elderly grandmothers digging in the bone-dry riverbed that ran through the village, desperate to find even a little water. But it wasn't just the ground that was parched and cracked. As we visited in people's homes, it was clear that hope in that community was parched and cracked too. I guess that's what the unrelenting burden of injustice can do. And everywhere we went, the plea was the same. Maruti, which means pastor, please pray for rain. Which, of course, we did. But truthfully, it felt quite desperate, quite hopeless, and our presence there seemed futile. On the last day of the mission, we gathered on the dry riverbeds and prayed together with members of the community one last time. And then something extraordinary happened. One of the grandmothers had brought a precious cup of water with her. She dipped her fingers in the cup and sprinkled the water in the air. And as she did so, she shouted out, the rain has come, the rain has come. And then she sprinkled the water over the group of clergy, black and white together, and she shouted again, the rain has come, the rain has come. There was the unmistakable notes of defiant hope in her voice and also in her eyes. I didn't understand what she meant. It made no sense. The rain has come when clearly it hadn't. Until a few months later, after the summer rains had finally fallen on that parched land, a softer, deeper rain fell with soaking grace into the barren cracks and fissures of our nation's soul. It was the rain of God's justice that swept the drought of apartheid away. I like to think that this is what that grandmother saw that day, and that just maybe our little group of missionaries, inadequate and powerless though we were, is what watered that hope within her. Not through any great merit of our own, but simply because we were there.
maybe that's all that God really needs. Amen.